Good morning on this last Sunday in May of what has to be the weirdest spring in a very long time. Uh, if you are online and you're looking for the worship and music segments that we've been posting over the last several weeks, you won't find them because this morning uh, we're actually meeting at the building at Community Bible Chapel for the first time in a while and we are live streaming the worship meeting, uh, at least the, the lion's share of that worship meeting. Uh, and so if you don't see it yet, it will, the recording of that live stream will be posted later. And if you're looking for the live stream, if you're watching this early in the morning and you're looking for the live stream, you need to go to the same link that you have for this YouTube channel and put a forward slash live at the end of that link. Uh, so the whole link would be youtube.com forward slash letter C forward slash community Ch Bible Chapel Richardson forward slash live. And that'll take you to the live stream. That's in the bulletin, but in case you're looking in and don't have that bulletin information, that'll get you there. <clears throat> this morning, we come to Jeremiah's and God's final address to the Judahites who have fled to Egypt from Judah. It's the last address to the people uh, that is found in the book of Jeremiah to that group of Judahites. Uh, there's more to come in the, in the book, and we'll be covering those chapters in the, la in the final few messages. But, uh, but this is an exceedingly important chapter in chapter 44 because it's really God's last word to the Judahites that he's been addressing. Um, pray with me before we start, and then we'll, we'll get rolling. Father, we thank you for this, this morning. We thank you for your sovereignty over all that's been happening. We trust you. We love you. We are grateful that we have a good shepherd who is faithful to guide his flock, through whatever happens, Father. And uh, we, we look to you, Lord, to direct our steps always. We look to you to tell us what's true. We look to you, Father, to define for us uh, all that constitutes life and well-being. And we pray, Lord, that you would direct us, uh, direct our thoughts as we come again to your word this morning, that we might we might have ears to hear and might respond with hearts that are ready uh, to follow and obey. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we begin chapter 44, the small remnant of Judahites that had fled from Judah to Egypt after Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of the city of Jerusalem uh, have, have ended up settling in Egypt. Originally, they came to a city called Tapanes, which is in the, um, it, it's in the far northeastern corner of Egypt. And, uh, and as you go from Judah to Egypt, it would have been one of the first places they came. But now they've settled in multiple places, and they've settled as far inland as Memphis, which is actually 100 miles south of the, uh, the Nile Delta 
And so they've, they've gotten themselves rooted in Egypt. And now in Jeremiah 44, uh, God speaks to them one more time. They have thus far <clears throat> fled from the, the place that God told them to stay <laughs> in order to get away from the king that God told them not to fear. And now God tells them that he's going to send that same king, Nebuchadnezzar, to Egypt to do to them the very thing that they, they thought that all that running was supposed to prevent. Now that in itself should tell you and me something about how God will deal with us when we close our ears to what he's told us and we go on our merry way and we think that we're creating protection and provision for ourselves. Even a perfunctory examination of the Bible will tell you that God is not in the business of letting us have our way when our way ignores his way. He is actually faithful to frustrate and defeat our plans. In chapter 44, Jeremiah uh, has gone with the Judahites into Egypt, whether voluntarily or by force. And he has continued, he has persisted in speaking every word to them that God has given him to speak. In the first nine verses of chapter 44, Jeremiah delivers an impassioned rebuke of the Judahites on behalf of God. He says to them, God says to them through Jeremiah, you have, seen, you have seen my fierce corrective judgment that came upon Jerusalem and upon the cities of Judah because of the exact same sins that you are now committing in Egypt, serving other gods whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And he says, he's saying to, the, to them, but I didn't leave you to guess about whether that would be okay with me or not. I sent you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying to you, do not do this abominable thing, which I hate. See, God is, is saying to them, I, I showed you and I told you, you have seen with your own eyes how I deal with my people when they do the things you're doing right now. And you've heard with your own ears my clear word to you that I sent my, my prophets to, to speak to you, calling you not to do these things and warning you. But though your ears heard and your eyes saw, you did not incline your heart, you did not incline your ears to listen to my word, that you might turn from your wickedness. Instead, you persist in your rebellion against me. Therefore, verse 6, my wrath and my anger were poured out on the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. That's why they, they lay in a condition of ruin and desolation this very day, just as my prophets said would happen, and just as you have seen with your own eyes. God is, is saying to his people, there's, there's no guesswork here. And if that's what God said to Judah when they 
convinced themselves that their idolatrous ways were okay with God, how should you and I expect God to respond when we convince ourselves that, he's, that he won't mind our adjustments to his word? God says in verses 7 and 8 of this chapter, he says, Why are you doing great harm to yourselves by committing these same sins that, that your, your people committed when they were in Judah? And then in verse 9, he says, Have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers and your own wickedness? Have you forgotten? If we look at the most concise form of God's list of charges here against the Judahites, we get a very powerful snapshot of both the graciousness in God's appeal to men and the foolishness of men's typical response to that appeal. God says to the Judahites, you've seen my judgment against your own kinsmen when they did the same things you're now doing. You've heard my word and my warning through my prophets, but you aren't listening to me. That's why your cities lay in ruin today. Why are you repeating the same sins, knowing that I'll judge you yet again? Why are you doing such great harm to yourselves? Have you forgotten everything that I have faithfully told you and shown you? Have you forgotten your own wickedness? Verses 10 to 14 move from shaming and rebuke to God's direct proclamation of imminent judgment. And this is an uncompromising warning. Verse 10 says, But they have not become contrite even to this day, nor have they feared nor walked in my law or my statutes, which I have set before you and before your fathers. Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am going to set my face against you for woe, even to cut off all Judah. And I will take away the remnant of Judah who have set their mind on entering the land of Egypt to reside there, and they will all they will all meet their end in the land of Egypt. They will fall by the sword, and they will meet their end by famine. Both small and great will die by the sword and famine, and they will become a curse, an object of horror, and an imprecation and a reproach. And I will punish those who live in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence. So there will be no refugees or survivors for the remnant of Judah who have entered in, into the land of Egypt to reside there and then to return to the land of Judah to which they are longing to return and live. For none will return except a few refugees. Just as God had judged the, the much larger Judahite remnant for doing these very same things when they were still in Judah, now he was going to judge this much smaller remnant. In spite of the, the most vigorous efforts that they had, had done to be 
to, to put Yahweh out of the picture, to be done with him. They had not escaped his hand. God was about to come after them right where they, dwell, right where they dwelled, uh, in the place to which he, they had fled, just as he clearly told them he was going to do both before and after they fled to Egypt. Verse 14 says, There will be no refugees or survivors for the remnant of Judah who have entered the land of Egypt to reside there and then to return to the land of Judah to which they are longing to return. But that same verse then immediately says, For none will return except a few refugees. We find that same pattern in verses 27 and 28 later in the chapter. God says, Behold, I am watching over them for harm and not for good, and all the men of Judah who are, in, who are in the land of Egypt will meet their end by the sword and by famine until they are completely gone. But then the very next verse says, Those who escape the sword will return out of the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, few in number. Then all the remnant of Judah who have gone to the land of Egypt to reside there will know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. Is there anyone here who thinks that Jeremiah was just kind of dim-witted and didn't know the difference between the words all and not all? <laughs> I don't think that's what's going on here. The only reason that, that, uh, that we have trouble with this kind of thing is because we are imposing 21st century Western, especially American, language conventions on an ancient Near Eastern way of speaking. To our sensibilities, if you make an absolute statement like, I'm going to destroy all of you, and then you immediately follow that by saying, I'm going to spare a few of you, that's a contradiction. But to the sensibilities of Jews living in Old Testament times, that's exactly how you would expect an exception to an absolute to be presented. The absolute is presented first then the qualification or exception that moderates the absolute. If no qualification is given, you know the absolute stands on its own. If a qualification is given, you know it doesn't. That same pattern is repeated countless times in the book of Jeremiah and actually throughout the Old Testament. And I believe that that pattern has a very deliberate and important purpose in the mind of God when it comes to his declarations of judgment in the temporal realm, in other words, here on earth. God first declares what his judgment will look like apart from his mercy, so we'll understand what we fully deserve from his hand. And then he declares his intention to spare some from that judgment because of his mercy, in order that the whole truth about his character will be made known to his people. The uncompromising first declaration of severe judgment causes us to see in very forceful terms what we actually deserve from God. And then the second declaration of God's merciful exception to that fierce judgment causes us to see in dramatic measure the beauty of God's mercy and grace. 
I say all that just as a little, a little lesson in biblical interpretation. We need to let the standards of language in biblical times be what they were, not what we'd like them to be. And we need to hear what God is saying through that way of speaking. In verses 15 to 19, the Judahites respond to Jeremiah. And their response is pretty much as bad as bad gets. But it's, again, exceedingly instructive if we want to know the truth about our own tendencies, our own tendencies in light of God's unwavering character. In, these, uh, in this passage, the people basically say to Jeremiah, mm, we're not listening to you anymore. We're going to go on worshiping the Queen of Heaven. Now, that, that whole thing about the queen of heaven in this passage is, is fascinating. It says that they're going to they're gonna make cakes in her image. So they, they made these little sacrificial cakes in the image of, uh, of this goddess of heaven. And, and I'm sure they ate some of them, and then they offered some of them in sacrifice as burnt offerings to her. And if you go back to chapter 7, you find that that whole process was a family affair. Uh, listen to this. Chapter 7, verses 16 to 18. God says to Judah, as for you, or to Jeremiah, as for you, do not pray for this people and do not lift up cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I do not hear you. And then God says, to Jeremiah, do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. Do they spite me, declares Yahweh? Is it not themselves that they spite? to their own shame. The essence of the people's response here in chapter 44 to Jeremiah is simple and very pragmatic. They say to him, things always go a lot better for us when we're worshiping gods other than Yahweh. So that's what we're going to keep doing. You might think that these Judahites have no fear whatsoever of Jeremiah's God, but, but the problem is not that they have no fear of Yahweh. It's that they reserve the lion's share of their fear for the highest bidder. And the only currency that gets their attention is comfort and safety. Aren't you glad that we don't ever have those priorities? Whichever God the Judahites conclude is going to do the best job of making things go smoothly for them. Bob hates that word, smoothly, <laughs> rightfully so. Whichever God they think is going to make things go smoothly for them right here and right now, that's the God that they will concentrate their energies on appeasing. Sure, the God of Jeremiah might be fearsome, but not as fearsome as the goddess of heaven who protects them from Jeremiah's God. See, many of these people still remembered the great reformation under King Josiah. 
they remembered how things had gone in Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah before Josiah started destroying their altars to false gods and throwing the bodies of their pagan priests onto the burning piles of apostates outside the city walls. Their memories told them that things had gone pretty well for them before that Reformation, kind of like they were now going for them in Egypt. Now that they had gotten back to worshiping the gods of smoothness. Now, just like in Josiah's day, there's this guy, Jeremiah, professing to speak for the God of all creation, and he keeps saying over and over again that God isn't going to put up with their worship of false gods any longer, that a day of reckoning has now come. But these are the same Judahites who in the last chapter called Jeremiah a liar and a traitor to his people. They said Yahweh had not sent him, so they have no reason to listen to him. They weren't very keen on either Jeremiah or the God that Jeremiah claimed to represent. After all, <laughs> would a God who was actually worthy of their fear have allowed Nebuchadnezzar to reduce that God's own house, his own temple, to rubble? So the people's answer to Jeremiah was along these lines. <laughs> We've already been here, Jeremiah. You, you revivalist types who preach the worship of only Yahweh, you always come with destruction in your hands, not construction. It's going fine for us right now in Egypt, just like it was before that other revival when Josiah got all excited about finding the book of Yahweh. We're not inclined to let things turn out again the way they did back then. So, no thanks. No thanks, Jeremiah. We'll keep worshiping the Queen of Heaven. We and our children will keep having our little baking projects, cooking up tasty little cakes in her image. And we'll do the same for any other God who takes care of us the way we deserve to be taken care of. Our gods will protect us from your God and from Nebuchadnezzar, and it'll be great. So, Jeremiah, you can go away now. The rest of the chapter, starting with verse 20, is Jeremiah's response to the people's ridiculous proclamation, followed by God's response. First is Jeremiah's response in verses 20 to 23, and then God's response. And again, as I said at the beginning, this is the last response, the last declaration of Jeremiah and God to the Judahites who had fled to Egypt. In verses 20 to 23, we see Jeremiah's personal response to them. And he's saying to them, here's where you're fatally wrong. Verse 20, then Jeremiah said to all the people, to the men and women, even to all the people who were giving him such an answer. He said to them, as for the smoking sacrifices that you burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, 
you and your forefathers, your kings and your princes, and the people of the land, did not Yahweh remember them? And did not all this come into his mind? So Yahweh was no longer able to endure it because of the evil of your deeds, because of the abominations which you have committed. Thus your land has become a ruin, an object of horror, and a curse without inhabitant as it is this day. Because you have burned sacrifices and have sinned against Yahweh and not obeyed the voice of Yahweh or walked in his ways, in his law, in his statutes, in his testimonies, therefore this calamity has befallen you as it is this day. See, Jeremiah is telling them that they were catastrophically wrong on two fronts. First, the word that they were rejecting was God's word, not Jeremiah's word. And secondly, the time of ease that they had experienced when they were worshiping the goddess of heaven back in Judah was not because of blessings from the hand of that non-existent goddess. It was because of the forbearance of Yahweh. And that for forbearance had now come to an end. In verses 24 to 30, God gives his own answer to the Judahites through Jeremiah. And the essence of that answer is, I'm going to show you whose word will stand, yours or mine. The Judahites, and God reminds the Judahites in, this, in these last verses that they had arrogantly vowed to Jeremiah that they would certainly continue burning sacrifices to the queen of Egypt, uh, the, the queen of heaven in Egypt. And, and the reason that they made that vow is because things had gone so well for them when they had done that same thing back in Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. As chapter 44 ends, God sets up a showdown of vows. First, he reminds the Judahites of their vow, and then he makes his own vow. Listen to these verses. Jeremiah said to all the people, including all the women, hear the word of Yahweh, all Judah who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, as follows. As for you and your wives, you have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands what you said. We will certainly perform our vows that we have vowed to burn sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. Go ahead then and confirm your vows and certainly perform your vows. Nevertheless, hear the word of Yahweh, all Judah, who are living in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name says Yahweh. Never shall my name be invoked again by the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying as the Lord Yahweh lives. Behold, I am watching over them for harm and not for good, and all the men of Judah 
who are in the land of Egypt will meet their end by the sword and by famine until they are completely gone. Those who escape the sword will return out of the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, few in number. Then all the remnants of Judah who have gone to the land of Egypt to reside there will know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. This will be the sign to you, declares Yahweh, that I am going to punish you in this place so that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for harm. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am going to give over Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, to the hand of his enemies, to the hand of those who seek his life, just as I gave over Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who was his enemy and was seeking his life. <laughs> In this showdown of vows, the people vowing to go on worshiping their false gods and God decreeing to them that the judgment is about to, to come from his hand. Who wins? Well, God does. God's word stands and theirs falls. We have this ridiculous notion that a loving God is supposed to condescend to let us indulge our fears our misplaced fears. More than that, he's supposed to make things go well from us when we're running from things and running toward things that he has told us will never be worthy of that running because they will never be worthy of any of our fear. He alone is worthy of our fear. If we pay any attention to the history of God's dealings with his people in both Testaments, we already know because he has already told us over and over and over through the word of his prophets that he's not going to let that happen. We already know that God will faithfully overthrow our plans when we are fearing and trusting and clinging to things that have no power to protect us or to provide for us or to deliver us. How long will we persist in clinging to a view of God that his own word tells us over and over is a lie? A view of God that makes him out to be a, a cooperative God who's eager to give us whatever we consider to be well-being. A vending machine God who happily puts up with our divided affections, who's willing to let us lead lives that mostly ignore him except to occasionally put our coins in his slot and wait for him to give us whatever it is that we're demanding of him. A God who's willing to let us go on our own way while we pick and choose which parts of his word we're willing to embrace. In other words, while, while we treat truth as if it's our domain instead of his. My brother Bob said something this Wednesday when we were talking about this passage. He said, if your God is cooperative, your God is a fake. That's, that is so good. 
See what God actually tells us will always contradict our natural bent because our natural bent is a hellish bent. Jeremiah 17.9, which I keep citing, it says, it says the heart, meaning the heart of man, is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. So if we're, if we're following our natural inclination, we're going straight down the drain. Beloved, we need to get this. Ears that are inclined to listen to God are equally inclined not to listen to self. Let me say that again. Ears that are inclined to listen to God are equally inclined not to listen to self. Human logic is a marvelous gift from God that is 100% useless to us until it is submitted to his revelation. It's worse than that. It's not just useless. Our own reasoning is our mortal enemy until it is submitted to God's revelation. The Judahites' logic told them that because things had been more safe and comfortable back when they worshipped the goddess of heaven in the cities of Judah than they had been after King Josiah started forcing the ways of Yahweh on them, that must mean that it makes more sense to worship the goddess of heaven than it does to worship Yahweh. That's logical. It's also a fatal lie. We live today in the midst of a new age of reason that makes the last age of reason back in the 17th and 18th century look like child's play. That, that previous age of reason didn't go quite so far as to completely deny the existence of absolute truth. This one has done that very thing. But what that age of reason has in common with this one is that it treated human reasoning human logic as superior to God's revelation. God designed human reasoning always to work in response to his revelation, not apart from it. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Discipline, training, not logic. Ephesians 6, 4 tells us that, the, that godly parental discipline is, quote, the discipline and instruction of the Lord, not of the parent, not of the world, not of the mind apart from God. It is the discipline and instruction that comes from God. When your logic is submitted to God's revelation, it's logic on fire. When your logic stands alone, divorced from God's revelation, or when it is submitted to any other supposed truth, it's logic flushed down the drain, squandered on foolishness and falsehood. Friends, there is no possibility that you will rightly interpret either your successes or your failures 
if you're not listening to God's word. There's no possibility that you will rightly interpret either the comforts or the sufferings that you experience in this life if you're not submitting your logic to God's revelation. What did the Judahites need to do to understand <clears throat> why things had gone well for them for a little while in Judah and then not gone well when the Reformation came? Just one thing. Listen to what God told them. Listen to what the proven prophets told them on behalf of God, and then they would have known. It would have been crystal clear because God doesn't withhold the truth that we need for life and godliness. He has spelled that out for us in every generation of his people. And now we have marvelously have the entire, the entire revelation of God to mankind set before us. And there's no guesswork. There's no guesswork. We just need to listen to God. God's constant appeal to his people from beginning to end in the book of Jeremiah is incline your ears to listen to me. I have told you what's true. I've sent my prophets to you, rising up early and sending them to you urgently, time after time after time. And to prove that they spoke for me and not for themselves, I have done everything that I told them to declare I would do. But you have not listened to me. Now in his final address to his people, he says, I'll show you whose word will stand, and it will be mine. Beloved, this is more certain than tomorrow's sunrise. God's word will never, ever fail. Here's what will determine whether you spend your life believing lies that turn your heart further and further away from God, or believing the truth that turns your heart continually to the one in whom is all that is life indeed. You and I must fall on our knees in humility before God every single day of our lives and say to him, Lord, I come to you and to you alone to tell me what's true. If I don't, I cannot know it. I won't guess it. I won't stumble into the truth because my heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. But if I come to you, Lord, if I come to you, you will always speak truth to me and I'll know everything that I need to know. Pray with me. Dear Father, teach us to trust you with all our hearts to come to you and to you alone to tell us what's true, to tell us all that we need for life and godliness. Father, teach us not to lean on our own understanding, but in all things to trust in you. We know, Father, that if we do, you, you will lead us in the paths of righteousness for your sake. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord 
forever. We ask that you, that you would bring us to that humility before your word. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.